I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to the World Soccer Talk podcast. In this episode, we discuss the impact that VAR is having on the sport of soccer, CBS's big addition and big loss to their coverage of the UEFA Champions League that begins this week, our recommended games to watch midweek, and, of course, the letters from you, the listeners. My name is Christopher Harris. I'm joined by my co-host, Kartik Krishnayer. How was your weekend, and uh, how was your soccer watching? Yeah, I, I suppose the soccer watching... Uh, was all impacted by VAR, which um, we, we've said previously the Bundesliga um, is, a, is a league that may be less compelling now than the Premier League, but they don't have these bad VAR decisions in the Bundesliga. So I found myself, as the weekend kind of dragged on, starting with the, the Dortmund game Friday, gravitating a little bit back to the Bundesliga because um, the thing about watching uh, the Premier League as a neutral, but as a neutral who tends to support well, I'm a Manchester City supporter, and obviously they've been at the very top of the league the last few years. But beyond that, tends to support the underdog, um, is that it feels like VAR is not equitable. And and I would include Man City in this, right? Man City got uh, a horrifically unfair VAR decision in their favor last year against Everton, uh, which, which almost relegated Everton. Uh, you could say handed the title to Manchester City, but I think there were some decisions that went Liverpool's way through the course of the season as well. Uh, and then this weekend, I think uh, what you saw was VAR generally favoring uh, the bigger sides. And uh, that's something that um, bothers me. I mean, it bothered me the first year VAR was in where it seemed like the, the teams that were getting hurt the most by VAR were Wolves and Sheffield United, who were uh, recently promoted teams from the championship who were punching above their weight. And it seemed like they were on, and this could all be coincidence, but I don't know, we're now four years into VAR in the Premier League, and it's, um, I, I'm sorry, I, I know we should be talking about the actual matches, but VAR for me is the overriding factor of this weekend, overriding takeaway. So it does favor the big teams, it, so, so it seems, but also, the big teams have oftentimes the biggest crowds. So I just wonder in terms of being at Stamford Bridge and with the fans as loud as, as they are, if, if whether it's, whether it's uh, Old Trafford or Stamford Bridge, 
uh, or the Etihad or other stadiums, whether that crowd noise and that level of ferocity from the fans, if it does have an influence on the referees. Of course, I, th- I think in many ways, uh, if Christina Uncle, the referee expert, was on, on the phone with us right here, she'd say, no, no, it, it wouldn't have an impact. These are impartial referees. They uh, have played and refereed or refereed in the, the biggest stadiums in the world. They know the pressure. But subconsciously, it, it must have an impact, I, I would imagine, Kartik. Do you agree? Oh, it absolutely has an impact. That's, that's my entire theory is that because you're adding a second level of subjectivity, which um, is, uh, it is subjective, the VAR, the VAR interpretation. And I, I even think it's subjective when they draw the lines on offsides because I, I, I want to go back and look uh, at the offside call against Connor Cody uh, for Everton. I believe that when the ball is played, he is behind the ball, even if he's ahead of the Liverpool defenders. But I, I feel like the, the, that the, the freeze frame they they used was after the ball was released and moving um, diagonally backwards or diagonally to whatever direction from uh, the foot uh, of Neil Maupay towards uh, Connor Cody. So... I mean, even in those cases, there's a subjectivity involved, and it seems to always, I don't want to say always, but it seems to more often than not favor the, the Liverpools and the Man Cities and the Chelsea's uh, and the, uh, the Manchester United. And uh, it just leaves kind of a sour taste in my mouth. And on the Cornet goal that was disallowed, I mean, come on. I, I, I just, I think that was ultimately impacted uh, by the bridge crowd or by some sort of momentum in the match or, or, or whatever it was. It, it doesn't seem like these calls are not being made letter to the law, letter of the law. So what I had been sold on with VAR, I had been opposed to it. And then I flipped as it was implemented because I had been convinced by referees, uh, that, oh, it's going to be letter of the law. It's going to be very, very objective. Uh, the, the VAR official is going to be set, cast aside in, an, in, a, in another place, all of which is true, and that this will allow um, the crowd and the factors in the match that may influence a poor decision or the, or the, or the quick um, the quick place of play, which which uh, may create a, a bad decision or a wrong decision, this will correct that. Well, in fact, all it's done is added another layer of that, in my opinion. You know, it's made, it's made the, ma- uh, the match worse. It's made the game worse. Yeah, that, that's my biggest uh, takeaway from this is it's, uh, and, and this is not a new topic, right? This is something, like, like you said, we've been talking about for four years now with VAR in the Premier League. But to me, whether it's the Premier League or, or MLS or Bundesliga or Serie A or any league around the world uh, that uses VAR, and not every league uses VAR, but what for me happens oftentimes is it takes the fun out of the game. It takes the excitement out of the game. And we saw that too. I mean, the Brighton game, uh, with uh, Alexis McAllister scoring the goal of the season, and I mean, after you mean, we thought it was a fantastic goal. The crowd goes wild, the player celebrates, and then it goes to VAR, and then it's okay. A lot of scrutiny, uh, very tedious. Okay, w- was that player uh, offside or not? And by the smallest of hairs, he was offside, and. By the letter of the law, the correct decision was made and the goal was ruled off. But, Kartik, I'm going to have to call you on this one, though. In the past several times, you've said, well, these things balance out over the course of a season, right? 
Yeah, they do. Um, and they, and it already has for Chelsea because Chelsea fans were uh, going crazy after the Spurs match, right? They were complaining like mad that there was some sort of conspiracy against uh, 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 against Chelsea. And who was it? Was it Michael Oliver? Who was the official that day? Uh, uh, or, or was it uh, uh, Anthony Taylor? I think it was Anthony Taylor. Anthony Taylor should never uh, officiate at the bridge again. He should never be allowed to a Chelsea match again. Uh, two weeks later or three weeks later, how many weeks it's been since that Spurs match, they they clearly stole three points, <laughs> lack of a better term, even though you could argue two points were, were stolen from them uh, uh, in the Spurs match. So this stuff all balances out. I believe it does balance out over 38 matches. Where it doesn't balance out is when you have calls like this in cup competitions, which through the years, uh, it feels like Barcelona and Real Madrid have benefited more from botch calls uh, in UEFA competitions than other sides. And, and I even remember a uh, two-like tie between Juventus and Real Madrid, where there were all kinds of strange calls, all went in Real's favor. Uh, Bayern and Real Madrid, same thing. They all went in Real's favor. Barca and Chelsea, we know about that story. Barca, Arsenal. So um, I, I think over a league campaign, it does all even out, but it takes those moments away from fans. The Calderon that is Goodison exploding when Mopay plays that ball across to Cody, which, again, I still believe is off onside. I, I might have to go back and find some freeze frames or f- do freeze frames myself um, because I think they t- they he was behind the ball. I'm, I'm convinced of that. I, I know he was be- – I know the last Liverpool defender um, he was ahead of, but that's, uh, that's immaterial, actually, remember, with offside. Um, but it's taking those moments away. It's taking the moment away on the McAllister goal at Brighton. It's taking the moment away for the West Ham traveling fans uh, at the bridge. And we know what an intense derby that is. We know what an intense uh, uh, grudge match that is. And that's now my biggest complaint. Um, even as a fan uh, watching at home, when Cody scored that goal, I have a soft spot for Everton. I think everybody now realizes that, uh, particularly when they play in this Merseyside derby. The the excitement, the sheer joy I got from that goal in the 71st minute, I believe it was, putting them ahead in a Merseyside derby, which is not a position Everton has been in at Goodison in the last I think they last won a Merseyside Derby in Goodison uh, days after uh, Fenway Sports Group bought Liverpool. So that was in uh, November of 2010. Um, to take that moment away is just it, – it's, it's, it's really harsh. And um, I know that um, people say, well, you're getting – the VAR defenders say that you're getting the right calls now and it's a more fair and just game. The sport is always filled with in, in inequities and inequalities. It wasn't, it wasn't meant to be fair results-wise. And I maintain, even without VAR, officiating decisions tend to even out over 38 matches. So if you have VAR, they tend to even out. If you don't have VAR, they tend to even out. And you tend to get the best champions. The right teams get relegated. Um, I mean, I think there was one exception, which was the year uh, Sheffield United was relegated under um, Neil Warnock. I think they, they got really some bad luck. With, with officiating and then obviously the Tevez situation with West Ham. But generally, these things even out. And adding VAR has just added more outrage and, and complication and anger to the pot. Yeah, you also had, of course, uh, Martinelli with that wonderful goal at Old Trafford for Arsenal, uh, which was called oh, back. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think rightly so in this one, where the foul earlier, uh, Martin Odegaard, um, kind of uh, in pushing and, and kind of... Uh, you mean l- lower contact uh, on that one, but also you had Newcastle United that had a goal 
that was uh, disallowed due to VAR. And in both the instances with the West Ham United equaliser, which was uh, chalked off, you mean disallowed, and then the Newcastle United uh, winner that was also disallowed, uh, the PGMOL, which is the refereeing body in the in England has come out to say that uh, mistakes were made in terms of the way that uh, VAR was used. So West Ham definitely will feel, uh, I mean, really kind of tough there in terms of, I mean, it could have had, I mean, that would have been an equaliser. That would be one point at Stamford Bridge. That's, that's huge. They walk away with a loss. Newcastle United, that could have been a victory there against Crystal Palace. Instead, that that's a draw. And, you mean you've lost two points there too. I think again at the end of the day, for me, the VAR thing is just it's just it's taking the excitement out of the game. Because um, when you see great goals or any goals, you, you celebrate, and but now you're almost holding back because you're like, oh, I don't want to celebrate too much just in case this is that ruled off. The other thing interesting, Kartik, this week is that UEFA for the group stage of the UEFA Champions League is going to be using the automated offside technology which has been used uh, in the last year or two in different uh, women's uh, soccer competitions as well as some other uh, tournaments, I believe. And this, I mean, we go back to kind of, you mean, that moment uh, in the Everton match where you said that the freeze frame was at the wrong moment. Maybe this will resolve those things where instead of... I mean, I'm sure there's humans still involved in the process, but there will be automated technology that will say, "Okay, here's when the ball was kicked, and here's when the player, you mean, in that particular moment in time, if that player was onside or offside." I I still think at the end of the day that the offside rule needs to be changed um, because we're getting into a situation, and this has been going on for a few years now, where it is so the the, the margin. I mean, the margins are so small that you can be off. By you mean a couple of inches, and it's ruled offside. Um, to me, I think there should be clear da- daylight. And if you see clear, clear daylight uh, between the, the attacker and the defender, then that should be offside. But if it's so close to the human eye, and even with the VAR, I mean, sometimes these VAR things go on for quite a couple of minutes, where replay, replay, looking at it again, analyzing it, is it off or not? And it's so hard to tell, even with technology. So, so maybe the automated thing will help us, but we'll find out probably. And it might take a while. It might take a couple of weeks to find out whether this is working or not. Yeah, maybe. And that I don't think it can work any worse, uh, truthfully. So it'll probably be an improvement. And to your point about daylight, I absolutely agree. This uh, That used to be the standard referees used. Okay, so you had these very... The, the 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 lines being drawn and the knee lunging forward and that being a playable part part of the body so that being offside that was never really considered by most top referees until very recently the other thing is about the the standard about back passes and touches by the defenders so going back i know i'm obsessing on one var call but going back to the cody goal that was disallowed uh, even if mope and the ball were behind Cody, which I don't think is accurate, as I've already said, I believe Milner had a touch that the ball may have may have uh, 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 t- touched off of Milner's boot, whether he intended to play it or not. So um, it, it, maybe it didn't. So, But if it did, then I think that that shouldn't be offside. But I know now the standard is if the defender intended to play 
the uh, uh, play the ball. Well, um, you know, if a guy didn't intend to deflect a, a ball into the back of the net, a defender, then maybe that shouldn't count. That shouldn't be a goal by the same standard, right? Uh, all these uh, shots that take wild deflections off defenders but are shots on target and then the, uh, the keeper's wrong-footed, I, I think it's ridiculous. If a defender touches a ball, then I think it's a live ball and their sh- offside should not apply. I don't care whether it was intentional or not. So the offside rule needs to be uh, re- re- re-examined. And, and the other thing, Chris, is that they constantly uh, tweak the offside rule, right? There are changes in directives every season in the Premier League or the Bundesliga or Serie A, wherever, that... Uh, affect how uh, fans and supporters and consumers uh, view the sport because we're used to one standard one season and then it changes the next even if the law hasn't been rewritten. Certain points of emphasis are are, are given to, to the officials and I, I think that this is complicating a very simple game to be honest. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the the thinking originally was that technology would uh, benefit these decisions. I mean, the goal line technology to me is perfect. Uh, it doesn't work 100% of the time. There's been instances where it hasn't worked. But 99.9% of the time, gold line technology works. And that's simpler. Um, that's more objective. This, it, I think the technology yeah, is complicating things. And, it's, and to me, it, it is diminishing the actual end product which is like for, for this podcast Kartik every every week we want to talk about all the great things that happened what, what wonderful match we watched uh you mean whether it was a comeback you mean Montreal coming back and beating Toronto or what uh, the Inter Milan uh, Milan derby whatever it may be and of course we saw those games and, and we saw a lot of uh, great goals and action but instead we're talking about VAR <laughs> and, and and I don't want it to be that way you mean but it is it has to be talked about because it is having such an impact and to me a negative impact on the game yes it's calling it's making some right decisions but it's it's not helping with the enjoyment and kind of flow of the game because it's stop start going back and just uh, micro analyzing situations it's, it's, take, yeah. it's taking the fun out. Yeah, and quite frankly, this weekend, maybe I'm a sourpuss. Uh, and if you feel that way, you can. You, we have the listener mailbag. You can come back at me or at us for it. But it, it's obscured the entire weekend for me, uh, at least in, in England, at least in the Premier League. And uh, I, I, I have a – and I, maybe this is me, my own psychology, which is uh, I need to work on. But I, I've gotten kind of depressed about some of these VAR calls and the way some of these results went as a result. I mean, because uh, particularly Everton and and West Ham, to where uh, and, and Newcastle to a lesser extent, uh, to where I'm thinking, ah, man, this is just it, it raises your blood pressure. It, it, it leaves you feeling angry for a, a period of time that then extends into the next match window. It really dampers the enjoyment. of of the sport and uh, the McAllister goal, same thing. It, it had me upset, although I guess Brighton still won and, and still won going away, but it's just, um, it, it has uh, added another layer, not only of subjectivity among officials, but another layer of controversy that obscures the actual matches. So um, you're different than me, Chris, you were focused on the football these last few weeks. I was so exhausted by Thursday night. I, um, I basically wanted to sleep all day Friday, um, and then I watched the, the Dortmund match and the, and the Burnley-West Brom match in the afternoon, but I was so exhausted by transfers, um, and this this whole, um, the last few days, we I don't remember a transfer deadline day being this hectic with so many late moves 
in a window that was already ex- an extended window. So real craziness Wednesday and Thursday. And then to go from the transfers to saying, okay, I'm, we're finally going to settle down and watch football. We know what the squads are now. And then this is the first weekend as a result. Um, but the good news is, um, honestly, in Italy, which I watched a little of this weekend, in Germany, which I watched more than I have all season, uh, they don't have these problems. And they have VAR there. So it may not be VAR. It might be the way the Premier League does VAR, which I think we We've said before on this show. Yeah, and that's the thing too about the Bundesliga. You mentioned earlier that uh, you kind of watched a little bit more Bundesliga this past weekend than, than previous weekends. I, th- I think that Friday game has a big impact. It's one of those things. It's almost like an appetizer. Um, the Premier League doesn't do a lot of Friday games, but when it does, it kind of. I mean, usually I gravitate to that Premier League match on a Friday, and then that leads me into the weekend and gets me hooked on that one. And that, then I'm watching the the Saturday morning one and the, and so on and so forth. And I think with the Bund- the Bundesliga, even though that Friday viewing number, I'm sure, and we've seen this in previous years, the Friday viewing number isn't significantly large. Uh, it does hook your attention and it gets grabs you in terms of the storylines. And then you're more likely to watch on the Saturday. However, Kartik, I don't know if you saw this, though. This past Saturday, uh, Union uh, Berlin against uh, Bayern Munich, a massive game, right? A top of the table clash, uh, top three clash. And ESPN Plus had some major issues. Um, I think for the first like half hour, basically, it wasn't working. Uh, and then it would work and then it would stop and then it would work on some devices, but not other devices. But unfortunately, I mean, that's the only option, right? When you're on a streaming service where all the games are on streaming and that's it and it's not working and it's a big game. By the time it came back, when I got it, it was uh, already missed two goals. It was already, I think, 1-1 uh, to both sides. Yeah, we missed both goals in the match, and that that's a classic example, right? Because I'm frustrated by the way Everton-Liverpool has finished. Also, uh, quite frankly, I think Van Dyke should have been sent off uh, for his uh, his studs-up challenge on Anona, and if uh, it were the other way around, Liverpool fans would be flooding Twitter saying, Everton players are always trying to hurt Liverpool players, and Everton are a dirty team, and they made this allegation for years. Um, when, it's the, when the shoe's on the other foot, uh, the, uh, Everton fans aren't saying the same thing. But anyway, VAR missed that also. So I was really kind of angry after that match, even though I know the, the draw is a good result for Everton. Um, and I think Lampard, he's seeing he, the, the, the things I had said about Lampard, where, where I'm very patient and think that things will come together, they're coming together, even though they're not getting uh, wins yet. They need to start getting some three points soon. But um, I'm happy with the prog- progression, but I really feel like they should have gotten three points out of that match. So I flipped to, uh, to the Bundesliga, to Hulu, and it's not working. And I don't think my Hulu stream came up until 9.50 or so Eastern time, yep. um, which, by which time uh, both goals in the match had been scored. So Leeds United, Kartik, what a roller coaster of a ride this season's going to be. I mean, we, we knew this, right? We, we, we knew there would be highs. We knew there'd be lows. And this past weekend uh, against Brentford, I think it really exposed this Leeds United uh, team. Yeah, I think uh, they have 
so this is this is the the issue ultimately with with Marsh teams. We saw it with Rania last season. Uh, so for those who aren't as familiar with Marsh's coaching philosophy, what you saw from Raniak at Manchester United, it's generally the same philosophy. I think it works better with the guys Marsh has. And he's, he's had a window to sign guys, right, that fit the system, unlike uh, Raniak at Man United, who was a caretaker and did, did, wasn't able to get the right personnel in. But you will see a lot of matches where they suffocate the opposition with their high press and creating mistakes as teams play out of the back. Uh, we saw that against Chelsea, right? And then you will see other matches where they're just opened up like, like this by teams that are similarly athletic and uh, similarly built to press high, create mistakes, um, force the tempo of the match. So Brentford is a bad matchup for them, which I felt last season too, and they got the result in that last match of the season to keep them up against a Brentford team that admittedly had nothing to play for other than maybe finishing a spot or two higher in the table. But um, I think this will be Leeds all season. I'm not, I'm not going to – I didn't jump on the bandwagon of saying, oh, now they're definitely safe. They're going to finish in the top half like others. Now I'm not jumping on the bandwagon that, oh, they're definitely going down. Um, I think this season is really complicated from multiple perspectives as to why it's difficult to see who clearly is going down and who's going to get cut adrift uh, at this point. Um, in addition to the World Cup, the extended transfer window and the amount of transfer activity at the end of the transfer window uh, is pretty uh, pretty glaring. And Leeds, of course, didn't get their number one target, right? Um, um, he ends up going to – well, he didn't end up going to Nice, right? He, he failed his physical at Nice. So they, they uh, let Dan James go to Fulham under the pretense, I think, that they were getting another player – another physical kind of or athletic type uh, player that didn't pan out. So I don't think they're undermanned, but it's going to be a, a topsy-turvy season for them. But the other side, I'd say, it's going to be like that of Southampton, who are going to be very up and down all season because mm-hmm. of their youth. Yep. All right, let's move on to uh, TV streaming news. Kartik, uh, I'll kick this one off. So big news this past week, and that is that CBS Sports uh, announced their uh, talent, uh, both their commentators and and studio talent uh, for the UEFA Champions League and also uh, Europa League uh, coverage uh, and, of course, Conference League, too. Um, So a lot of familiar faces are returning. Of course, uh, Kate Abdo, uh, Jamie Carragher. Uh, Thierry Henry, etc., etc. Mika Richards, I believe, too. So that hasn't changed there. But the big change is on the commentary side. And in the past few weeks, too, we had quite a few people asking us, hey, what's happening with Peter Drury? Is he coming back? Because Peter Drury uh, is now a full-time employee of uh, NBC Sports, uh, calling the games for the Premier League exclusively uh, for the United States audience. And uh, we found out the answer to that, and that is that Peter Drury has an exclusive contract uh, with NBC Sports, and he will not be doing the the UEFA Champions League uh, commentaries this season or or uh, Europa League for... um, Well, actually, the Champions League for... um, CBS Sports. Uh, Clive Tilsley will remain the the number one lead commentator uh, for UEFA Champions League. And uh, but Peter Drury is a big loss. Replacing Peter Drury is uh, Dre Cordero, uh, who many of you will know from uh, commentating a lot of Serie A games for CBS Sports and Paramount Plus. Uh, previously at BN Sports, uh, as well as calling a lot of the uh, CONCACAF Nations League and uh, games involving the U.S. men's national team for uh, CBS Sports and Paramount+. And the other addition uh, to CBS Sports is the one and only Ray Hudson, 
and Ray Hudson is joining uh, CBS Sports, and he will be alongside uh, Drake Cordero. Uh, the two of them have worked together quite a lot. Um, I mean, into Miami games also, but also mostly at being sports, uh, working together on commentaries. Kartik, what was your reaction to hearing the news that uh, Peter Drury is no longer there, but uh, replaced by Ray Hudson and, and of course, uh, Drake Cordero? I think it's great that Ray Hudson is uh, is coming into CBS's Champions League coverage, uh, and particularly when it comes to uh, covering Spanish teams. He has an incredible amount of experience. And uh, is one the one and only kind of co-commentator voice in the English language uh, for it. Uh, I, I'm a little disappointed, and obviously I'm partial to Ray Hudson as a uh, someone who was a ball boy during his playing career with the Fort Lauderdale Strikers, and and uh, continued to work with the Strikers organization on and off uh, in its various incarnations. After that, I was a little disappointed CBS didn't make a bigger deal of this, and I think maybe it's generational. Maybe the generation that CBS has targeted with Champions League coverage is less familiar with Ray Hudson and Ray Hudson's calls, or they might be more Premier League-centric, right? So they don't know, uh, they don't, they haven't watched him on Gold TV and BN through the years. Um, so that was a little disappointing, but that's just on the, on the media side. They, they went out and got the guy they, they, that really will enhance their coverage. So kudos to CBS Sports and their production team and their talent acquisition team. Maybe a, a little bit of a lesson to their, to their media side, media comm side, that this, this is a pretty big deal for a lot of people in the sport of this country. Great hire. Yeah, uh, me, me personally too. I'm a big Ray Hudson fan, but but again too, you and I know him very well. We've uh, grown up with him. We've seen him play. We've seen him coach. Uh, we've interviewed him many times, and he's a, a genuine, really really nice guy. And but he has he has a shtick, his shtick, magisterial in terms of his commentary style, which I think in some ways is unfair though, because there is a lot of heart and soul that goes into his commentary. He really lives the game. And, and, and not everyone likes Ray Hudson by any means. There's a lot of people that dislike his commentary style or co-commentary style. Uh, there's a lot of people that love it. I haven't found too many people that have been in the middle where they're kind of been indifferent. You either love him or hate him. I personally love him. I know there's a lot of other uh, people out there that love him. This will get a lot of people to tune in to the games that he's on just to hear him. And, and for me, my game to watch this, this week is PSG against Juventus on Tuesday on Paramount Plus uh, with uh, Ray Hudson co-commentating in this game because, of course, Messi's going to be there. Neymar's going to be playing. Uh, Mbappe's going to be playing. So on and so forth. And um, and also Ray's done a lot of uh, Serie A games too. So I'd love to see if this goes well on the Champions League to have Ray also doing some of the, the Serie A games, uh, the co-commentary uh, when this spot's available because I really think he can really enhance the game, uh, enhance the, the pleasure of viewing the game. And to me, Ray is a romantic. Ray is a person that will paint a picture. You'll be seeing a game and he'll be kind of honing in on on those coats of paint that, that are just uh, dazzling. They're just like, oh my gosh, just watch this for the pure beauty in, of it in slow-mo and listening to Ray's uh, description of it. It's poetry. And it, does, it doesn't, uh, not everyone's going to love it, but I, I do personally. And there's a lot of other big fans about it too. And I think this is a great hire. And I think, Kartik, I think you're right. I think on the um, the press side, on the media side, um, 
they almost underplayed this. Um, but in some ways, it might be just in terms of not wanting to go ahead and take any of the uh, exposure or kind of the, the headlines from Kate Abdo and Jamie Carragher and Thierry Henry, etc. But for me, this is a big hire. Losing Peter Drury, though, is a big loss. And it's unfortunate that he's not going to be able to call games for the Champions League, uh, for CBS Sports. And Dre Cordero is okay. He's good. He's not great. He's he's not one of the best. He's he's not one of the worst. He's good, and and he's he's getting better. He's improving, um, but his commentary style is quite different. And I, you mean I'm not? I mean I would personally much prefer to hear Peter Drury calling games, not because of the accent, but in terms of how how much better of a commentator he is. But Peter Drury has been doing this for a lot lot longer than uh, Dre Cordero. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Yeah, two, two things. You, you, you and I like Ray Hudson so much that it, I guess it was 12 years ago because it was right after Dempsey's goal for Fulham against Juventus. You and I went to listen to Ray Hudson read poetry. <laughs> Right, one night, yeah. uh, and, and that was combined with watching the Pallada film. But it was uh, it was pretty majestic to have that uh, um, that night where he he read us about uh, read us poetry about Raquel May and Messi and all of these greats. And then of course he threw in the Dempsey thing because Deuce had just scored that cracker for Fulham in the Europa League against Juventus. Uh, Arguably the, the biggest goal in Fulham's history, or was certainly one of the biggest goals in Fulham's history. Um, but the question for you, Chris, is would you prefer to have Peter Drury calling Champions League matches, what, you know, was it maybe 12 times a year on CBS, uh, 12, 15 times a year, or would you prefer this uh, arrangement? Because I prefer it, where he's on NBC every weekend and we're getting him 70, 75 times a year calling big Premier League matches, or, or more maybe. Some, some weekends he's calling, well, no, probably two matches a week. So, yeah, like 76 matches a year. 
Yeah, no, no, no. I prefer having Peter do the the, the, the actual Premier League. I mean, to me, that's enhanced the my pleasure of watching the Premier League this season. It's been a joy to listen to him uh, calling more games, and we get to now hear more of of him in the Premier League. In previous seasons, for the last ten years or so, we've had less of him calling Premier League games because oftentimes the big games that he would be calling. Uh, we wouldn't for the world feed it would instead it would be Ola White and I don't know Graham Lasso or somebody else so we wouldn't get to hear him do as much Premier League matches however I would, I would I would love the best of both worlds and that would be to have him doing Champions League and the and the actual Premier League too but I guess I mean it does show in some ways how competitive things are uh NBC Sports must have made the decision to say hey no you can't do CBS Sports uh coverage of the Champions League uh, you are a full-time employee of NBC Sports, and uh, we'd rather you not do that Champions League uh, stuff. But, but the other thing that's interesting about this, Kartik, I think for the first few weeks of this group stage, every single game is on Paramount+. Plus. There's no games on television on the English language side. What we do get on English language television is the Golasso show, so the Whip Around show, So um, which for the group stage has... You I mean, it, it makes sense in some ways if there's a lot of goals going in, there's so many ha- games happening at the same time. On the Spanish language side, uh, in previous years, we've had a lot of the games on Univision, Unamas, uh, Galavision, Tuduene. Uh, this year, most of the games, a large majority of the games, are going to be on uh, VIX Plus, which is their paid streaming service. So that's a big change. Um, the Paramount Plus on the English language side, I think a lot of us have gotten accustomed to that. Uh, it's cheaper than VIX Plus. I think VIX Plus is $7 a month. Uh, and then Paramount Plus is, what, $5 a month. So um, so this will be a big test, I think, for the, the CBS Sports versus Univision battle. Having said that, though, two Kartik, I think hiring Dre Cordero and Ray Hudson is going to be appealing to a lot of the bilinguals, kind of the the, the the households that speak English and Spanish. And maybe CBS Sports thinks that having uh, Andres Cordero uh, on these calls with Ray Hudson too, and with Ray, of course, I'm sure he's going to be calling a lot of the PSG games and Barcelona games and kind of the... The, the European, whether it's Spanish teams, Italian teams, etc., whether that was a deci- part of the decision-making process also. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I, 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 I've been amazed that CBS's ratings have been so high while the matches are available on Univision. So this maybe cuts into a different demographic for them, a demographic that's going to, that is watching the Champions League but on another network. And that also sets up well for the next six, well, I guess now it's eight years, right? They have, they have this for eight more seasons. So uh, now that they've got the long runway, which is always a problem with these rights deals in the past when they were on three-year cycles, they can really begin to hone in on targets in terms of demographics that they might want to shift over gradually to their coverage. So I think this is all very smart and strategic from CBS's point of view. So what about the uh, the evolution of Ray Hudson as a uh, co-commentator? Because when he was coaching in Major League Soccer, uh, he started doing some games for ESPN. Actually, when it, before he was coaching. So before he was coaching in, in MLS, he was doing games for ESPN at the time. Uh, and then then he became a coach in MLS. And then that ESPN job, you know, obviously you, can't, you couldn't do both. But from there, you mean, he's done goal tv like you said uh went on to be in sports and was really kind of the 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 main person at being sports 
uh, then was doing into Miami games. But now, to me, this is a big step up for him personally. I mean, CBS Sports, I mean, you can't get much bigger than that. Yeah, no, you can't. And I think that this is a, a huge step up. And there have been calls for years for national broadcasters to hire Ray Hudson, right? Literally, since we started doing this show in whatever incarnation, in 2006, I believe it was. Maybe it was 2005 with you. I didn't join you until 2006. There have been calls for, why doesn't ESPN hire Ray Hudson? Why doesn't Fox hire Ray Hudson? Why doesn't NBC hire Ray Hudson? Why doesn't Turner hire Ray Hudson? Now CBS has actually come through and done it. So, um, And I, I should mention, CBS Sports has a major presence in South Florida. They have a, uh, a studio uh, and a facility in Fort Lauderdale. So it might be easier for them to get guys like Andre Cordero also is from Miami, right? So get guys like Dre Cordero and Ray Hudson into uh, – they're, they're more on the radar for CBS maybe than they are for networks that don't have a major facility in South Florida, although NBC does also. So um, maybe no excuse on their front. But, again, uh, Ray Hudson maybe doesn't fit the Premier League very well. It's, it's more uh, a continental thing. And, and so yeah. great move by CBS. Yeah, I think in many ways, though, too, Kartik, this could be uh, another step up for Ray Hudson opportunities. Maybe if he does well at CBS Sports, uh, maybe and that, that might not be an exclusive deal. Maybe he can also do some coverage uh, for some of the other broadcasters. But uh, yeah, no, I'm looking forward to watching it. I, I think one more thing about the Ray Hudson thing is that uh, I think this is a huge plus on the highlight reel. So I can imagine in terms of UEFA Champions League highlights you mean on, on television or online or on, on social media, and you've got Ray Hudson you mean explaining a, a Messi goal or a Neymar goal that would get a lot more plays, a lot more interest than, say, I don't know, no offense, but like Rob Green as a, as a co-commentator, uh, who is going to be one of the CBS Sports' co-commentators with Clive Tildesley. So, uh, yeah, no, I think it's going to be a big, a big plus for CBS Sports, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. Let's move on to listener mailbag. Uh, Kartik, I think you and I have been watching Welcome to Wrexham. We'll probably do a show entirely on Welcome to Wrexham, our thoughts on this uh, series from FX. Chris says, I briefly wanted to offer my thoughts on Welcome to Wrexham so far. I think it's a well-put-together series, so much so that I have stopped watching Hard Knocks on HBO Max. Unlike Hard Knocks, in my view, this is a true underdog story with just a touch of Hollywood in it. The owners are not the stars of the series. Instead, it's the real-life stories of the players, the town, and staff at Wrexham that makes this series so good. One of the best new series I have watched in recent years. All right, moving on. Let's see. Greg's got some some feedback for us about uh, last week's episode, talking about uh, the managers under pressure. Uh, we talked about the four managers, and then uh, within 24 hours after that podcast came out, uh, Scotty Parker got, got sacked. Um, there's three more to go. But anyway, Greg says, um, the four managers discussion last week got me thinking. Swap them around. Would uh, Brendan Rodgers at Aston Villa do better than Steven Gerrard? Yes. Would Rodgers at Everton um, do better than Lampard? Maybe. But their issue is getting someone to score. No manager can get the goals out of that front line when um, DCL is injured, which is often. Would any manager at Leicester be in the same situation? Yes. 
The, the club is a mess financially, and the dressing room must be unstable given the captain leaving a week before the season starts and for Fana downing tools. Maybe the dressing room is his doing, or maybe the players can see that ownership is tightening belts. They also don't have a director of football, as they're waiting for that guy from Southampton to finish his gardening, gardening leave. Same with Bournemouth. No manager, aside from maybe Big Sam, could keep them up. But does that make, uh, make you wonder about Scott Parker? He's now been at odds with two successive owners. Maybe it's his bad luck. Maybe, it's, uh, maybe he's a, a bit of the pill. Would Steven Gerrard do better than anyone else at the other three clubs? Lampard? I don't know. They, they don't seem to have much in their managerial toolkit other than, come on, boys, we have to outwork the other team. And on Scotty Parker, I have to say, the, uh, I, uh, we did a Twitter space at the end of the transfer deadline day, and uh, I had a lot of listeners. Some were from the U.K. It was crazy. People stayed up, did this at 8 o'clock Eastern time when the window shut, and I had car problems. I, I still actually have one of my two cars that's not working, that's not starting. So I had to have a mechanic come here, and I missed the last hour of the window and ended up pushing the state space back to 8 p.m. Eastern, which is 1 a.m. U.K. time. There were still people in the U.K. UK up wanting to talk transfers who jumped on my space and um while we ended up going through the transfers, when we got to Fulham, the ultim- the conversation then shifted away from transfers to Scott Parker, and basically, Parker should never manage again. And these weren't Fulham fans, by the way. One, one guy leading the charge was a Chelsea fan. Fulham, uh, Parker should never manage again because Mitrovic obviously uh, got neutered by Parker. Now, in hindsight, uh, Marco Silva, we, we give him lots of plaudits. I rate Marco Silva pretty highly as a manager, but um, what did Silva do, according to the people on our space he just realized that he had this great number nine and decided to play to his strengths so i think parker's uh, reputation is as much damaged by fulham post parker as it is um his stint at bournemouth which uh, you and i have talked about since january right that parker was underachieving at bournemouth um in terms of uh, Lampard, I think he has more in his toolkit than just uh, the the rousing speech, although that clearly is a big part of it, right, because Everton's giving spirited uh, performances. You see what Everton's trying to do tactically, um, and, I, and, it, and it makes sense. It's just taking some time with all the new players. In terms of Gerrard, uh, we saw more this weekend, right? Uh, Douglas Luiz being inserted in, in more of a kind of attacking role, more of an eight than a six, and maybe even you could argue a little bit of playing a little bit of a 10. Uh, no Coutinho, no Buendia in that starting uh, a lineup. Maybe this was to counter Man City, right? But it looked like it, it, Villa looked better playing with, with Luis in a, in a more central, advanced role um, and with some protection behind him than when Coutinho was there and Luis is dropped further back and you have McGinn uh, kind of uh, trying to connect the lines between the two of them. So I, I think that that was an improvement in terms of Brendan Rodgers. Uh, I don't know. Lester is a mess. And um, the the situation with Lester um, will be interesting when the new director of football comes in. There was some dissatisfaction at Southampton with the acquisition policy. Southampton had had the magic touch for many years with going into the continent, getting guys, and then flipping them. I mean, even guys, you think about guys like Sadio Mane and Gaziano Pella and some of the guys they, they brought in from continental clubs were, were either big hits for them or were sold for uh, uh, massive, massive amounts of money. I mean, obviously, uh, Van Dyke coming in from Celtic also. Um, 
now there was some dissatisfaction, and they went ahead and poached uh, a guy from Manchester City who knows the Man City system really well, which is why Southampton has brought in three or four Man City players, uh, I think four uh, Manchester City players over the summer, right? Young players from Manchester City, either on loan or bought them outright with a buyback clause. So how, how he'll fare at Leicester is, is anyone's guess. And I think um, there's also um, probably some knock-on effect now from the ownership issue, uh, from the owner passing away. His son has run the club. Obviously, they, they, they won the FA Cup. They finished fifth two successive years with two very good seasons in the Premier League uh, on, under him. But that may have just been a knock-on effect. Now we're seeing the first sustained rebuild uh, under the new under the the, 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 the son, the new, the younger owner, and um, it, it's not going very well. So maybe that has a lot to do with what's happening at Leicester as well. Yeah, definitely uh, ones to keep an eye on in terms of Leicester, Aston Villa, uh, Bournemouth with with a comeback victory over the week at the weekend, and uh, those managers still under pressure. I mean, obviously with Bournemouth, uh, you mean it'll be interesting to see if if that will continue. Uh, and actually, I should mention Bournemouth. I think that they'd be better off not getting a big Sam and getting a, a manager who uh, is is willing to play. Uh, some good football with the team they have because they have a lot of parts that are left over from Eddie Howe that can play football. I've suggested Chris Wilder. Now, of course, Burrow have started terribly in the championship, but I still think that's a guy that might be able to squeeze 40 points out of this squad just by virtue of the way he sets up his team and the way he plays. Although it can go terribly bad with him, as we saw with Sheffield United the second season in the Premier League and uh, now with Burrow because uh, Wilder is not going to sit back and, and, and stick eight and behind the ball at any point. So that uh, it could be risky, but I, I think maybe not necessarily him, but a manager like him is where I'd go. Man, maybe, maybe Slavin Bilic. That might be the right guy. Mm-hmm. All right. Next up is Dave. Dave says that the Premier League has a lot of money and, uh, and prestige right now, and it's, it seems to be only increasing. Will they squander their advantage somehow? It was not that long ago that the Premier League was on the verge of losing the fourth Champions League slot, while nobody outside Spain could beat a Spanish team in the Champions League or the Europa League. I guess you never know what the future holds, but the Premier League is in an enviable, enviable position. JP says, all the talk of the Premier League being the de facto Super League is premature. Yes, it's the most popular domestic league in the world. Yes, they spend the most money. That doesn't always mean they have the best teams or most attractive matches. The Premier League has had a large advantage with their television contracts for many, many years already. Some of those years produced poor results in European play. It's all cyclical, as you've said. Just because they spend the most doesn't always equate to spending well. And we saw this with this uh, transfer window in the summer is the amount of uh, money that was spent in this transfer window by Premier League teams was the same amount of money as La Liga, the Bundesliga, Serie A and Liga combined. And I think, yeah, definitely in terms of just spending money doesn't mean that's going to equal success, but the sheer amount of 
uh, players and the money spent, but the sheer amount of quality that's going to these clubs. And it's not just your, I mean, Arsenal's or Man City's or Man United's or Chelsea's, um, but you're also getting, you mean, whether it's Newcastle United, uh, West Ham United or, or other teams uh, throughout the actual league against some major, major players, some Brazilian stars, um, that are going to the Premier League and not just the top four, not to the top four or top six clubs. So uh, you would imagine that that will result in really more domination in Europe. But Europe is, is a cup competition too. So that there's that factor too, right, Kartik? Yeah, Europe is a cup competition and I think anything can happen. And uh, there are certain uh, built-in factors that, that maybe favor uh, Spanish clubs in particular. I, I do think that this historically has always been cyclical. Serie A was on top for a long period of time. Uh, maybe younger people don't remember that, but they were the go-to league in the 90s and early 2000s. Spain was on top for a while. We've had fleeting moments where the Premier League has come come to the forefront or, or the Bundesliga. But now it feels like the cycle might be broken because the disparity in TV money and not just TV money, but commercial contracts and sponsorship uh, for individual clubs, uh, for clubs beyond the top clubs in, in a league are so skewed. So, for example, while Bayern still draws about as much sponsorship revenue as, um, as any club in England, right? Um, you, you compare uh, hypothetically West Ham or Brighton to similar level clubs in Spain and, uh, and Germany and Italy, and the sponsorship revenue is off the charts for the, for the English clubs uh, by comparison. Then you throw in the television money. So I think that, that uh, while the assumption is it's cyclical and there seems to be some sort of um, – built-in campaign, right? This, this narrative, um, almost like a very preachy political campaign that's being created on social media to push back against the, the, um, the notion that English clubs are dominating. Or there are also people saying that there has to be some sort of regulation of English clubs that somehow shouldn't exist for continental clubs, right? There has to be some sort of uh, 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 standard or regulation imposed by UEFA or FIFA to bring English clubs back, into, back to the mean towards Spanish and Italian clubs. Even though uh, the fans of Spanish and Italian football, Chris, have never advocated this for Eastern European clubs or clubs from uh, the Low Countries or clubs from Scandinavia, right? When Spanish and Italian clubs have been beating up on those clubs in Europe, it was never a problem. There was never anything wrong with the system. It's only now that they see England's clubs pulling away and the, and the English league pulling away that suddenly there has to be some sort of regulation. I love how that works. But um, I don't think any of that is going to matter. I actually think the cycle now, Chris, has been broken and the Premier League is going to pull away. Champions League's a cup competition. Anything can happen. I don't know that it's a, it's a really good standard. I mean, maybe it is a standard, but it shouldn't be the only standard for comparing and judging leagues. Um, but I think in just the general overall drift of where top players are going to go, where guys are going to want to play football, um, it's, it's England. It's the Premier League. And this, this applies to people from, from everywhere. The influx of Brazilian players to the Premier League in the last few seasons is pretty significant, Chris, because this is something that always was the missing element in the Premier League, right? There were a lot of top Brazilian players in Italy always, Spain, Spain less than Italy. Germany developed, a, there was a period where there were a lot of the top, uh, uh, Brazilian players were going to Germany, obviously always been a ton in Portugal. Now you're seeing, um, I want to say, the majority of uh, 
Brazil's really elite players, maybe of their top 20 players, the majority of them are now playing in England. It might even be 15 of the 20. I actually should do this and, and count it up. But if you go position by position in the Brazilian national team and who's going to start, who's going to be the backups in Qatar, um, I think the majority of them play in the Premier League now. Yeah, that's always been the uh, the discussion in previous years where we talk, talk to people about uh, the best leagues in the world. And oftentimes it would be a battle discussion, kind of a heated discussion between La Liga versus the Premier League. And on the La Liga side, oftentimes they would say like, well, yeah, but still, you've got the best players in the world don't play in the Premier League. It's it's Messi playing in, in Spain. It's uh, Neymar playing in Spain. Um, those, play, those two players in particular have now moved on, of course, to, to France. However, with the amount of Brazilians coming into the Premier League, I mean, there's the capacity, the potential that the best players in the world, the next the next generation of the best players in the world will be in, playing in the Premier League. So whether it's arguably Erling Haaland, right, or it's, um, I mean, Paqueta or whatever, whoever these players are going to be, they're, they're going to be the next big superstars. Um, we shall see. Anthony, too. I mean, Anthony making, making a great debut for Manchester United. You saw right away the brilliance and the difference in, in that player. Pejeta in particular, Pejeta, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. I've heard various pronunciations in watching Leon matches. So uh, we'll go whatever the pronunciation is. That in particular, a Brazilian friend of mine uh, WhatsApp me when that move to West Ham happened. Said that's just that to him is just confirmation. The Premier League is, is pulling away. And he's been one of these people who said, oh, it's cyclical. Yeah, Premier League's on top now, but it'll come back. It'll be Spain or, or Italy at some point. And he um, he's based in Brazil. He he WhatsApp me and said that that's it. You know that that's like to him the best Brazilian number ten of this generation. Who not only has he gone to West Ham, but he's gone to West Ham specifically because he wanted to play in the Premier League. That was the consideration. It's like I want to be where the best is, and I'm Brazil's best number. At least in in, in this guy's opinion, I'm Brazil's best number ten of this generation. I want to be where the best are, so I need to find my way to an English club. And if Man City, Man United aren't going to sign me, let me go to the next level to the to the level right below that just so I get myself into the Premier League. Yeah, uh, that's a big deal. And I, and I wouldn't be surprised in a couple of years if he did join Man City or Arsenal or Chelsea or Man United and then was you mean just top drawer right in terms of just uh moving up the ladder uh hopefully, hopefully he'll do well at West West Ham hopefully he'll stay there for a long time but uh, I, I think he, I think he probably will because Moyes is one manager, and I explained this to this guy. I'm like, I think the reason he's going to West Ham is Moyes is a manager that still values the use of a number ten, which is kind of now passe in uh, club football. Maybe not at the international level, but in club football, you see teams playing either in a four three three or a three five two or, or some variation of those formations, which doesn't feature a central playmaker. West Ham uh, throughout Moyes' tenure, and this was the same thing at Everton. Uh, always have had that central playmaker, whether it was Timmy Cahill. Recently with West Ham, it's been, he's alternated ben, uh, Lanzini, Ben Rama, uh, Fornals. But he, he favors that central attacking midfield player that a lot of managers are phasing out in their setup. So I think West Ham actually, from a playing perspective, is probably a great fit for him. And he, and he looked pretty, pretty tidy in his debut uh, against Chelsea. Obviously, we've talked ad nauseum about VAR in that match. But the match itself uh, was pretty yeah. good. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Arsenal Man United game too. A, lo- a lot of good games this past weekend. And and that's the thing. One more thing on this too, Kartik, is that uh, taking the the, the uh, other than the Premier League, uh, the next four top European leagues and those uh, four European leagues having the same spend as just the Premier League. I think what it may show is in the next few years is maybe a level of desperation in terms of the Barcelona's, Real Madrid's, Juventus's of the world going into deeper debt just to try to keep up, just try to, to, to try to get those players because that is their ticket to su- success in terms of whether it's the Champions League, sponsorship deals, uh, ticket sales, TV revenue. TV revenue has such a Im- big impact um, that the, the fear is that that gap is going to you know, extend even further uh, which is worrying signs for a lot of those big clubs in Europe. Just a couple more comments to go. Um, Rico wants to talk about Anthony Gordon. Uh, Rico says, Anthony Gordon is another overhyped English player who doesn't compare to Havertz, Pulisic or Werner, uh, who have produced for bigger, bigger clubs and in the Champions League. I disagree with Kartik's assessment, and I agree with Christopher. If Gordon is worth $100 million, uh, then how much is Vinicius Jr. worth? $250 million? Uh, yeah, I, I can see that perspective if you're focused solely on the Champions League. Um, but there's a consistency factor you need in the Premier League, which Gordon has shown at Everton, which Havertz has never shown. I, I don't even know if Havertz is... I, I would play him very often in the Premier League. I know he got the winner in this match this past week, but he's an inconsistent player. Uh, he, he has runs of form where he looks very good for three or four weeks and then fades for six weeks and then uh, plays well in Europe, so we tend to forget about it. I, I don't think he's a, he's an elite Premier League player at all. I don't think he should be on a top Premier League side. Pulisic has had a lot of injuries. I think there's still some flaws in his game that haven't been worked out, but I think he has more upside than Havertz. Havertz I wouldn't touch, personally, if I were running a football club. And Werner, I like Timo Werner. I think uh, he was underappreciated by fans in England. I think he did a lot of stuff off the ball that the two other players you mentioned, Havertz and Pulisic, don't do. Uh, makes a, Made a lot of good forward runs, uh, did a lot of things in terms of his movement uh, and, and, and drifting into space that enabled other players uh, to do two good things for uh, Chelsea in the attack so uh, but he again lacked the consistency that I think Gordon has shown albeit at a club struggling uh, but Gordon has been consistently good I would say since last December since before uh, Benitez got sacked uh, he's been consistently good through this point I don't think Havertz Pulisic or Werner ever had a run of that long where they were consistently good in their play in the league, uh, particularly Havertz. Again, I would go back to Havertz and say he's a flash in the pan. He's the type of guy who should be a reserve maybe on a continental club that's competing in Europe that you throw on for the last 30 minutes of a Champions League match. Maybe he'd be good at Real Madrid in that role, but I do not think he's consistent enough to be a, a starter in the Premier League for a top club. Last but not least, uh, Ryan Evans says, I, want really, I really wanted to get your guys' thoughts on the Alex Neal situation. I still don't know what happened to him and Sunderland. Judging from the contract, he had, it seemed like he was never uh, planning to stay long-term with Sunderland and jumped at the first opportunity he got to leave. Uh, also, Champions League chances for Celtic and Rangers. Rangers worry me a bit uh, because of their inconsistency. Celtic, I think, are going to be very good and at least make it out of the group stage. The man I dubbed uh, King uh, Kyogo, uh, because he's the king of the uh, Scottish Premiership, I think will show the world that he isn't just the big fish in the small pond, but a world stage superstar. 
So, Kartik, I'll, I'll tackle uh, Celtic and Rangers first. Uh, Kyogo, I, I've, I've watched um, over the past year and for Celtic. What an exceptional player. Really, really good Japanese player. Uh, the Old Firm Derby, which is this past weekend, uh, he got injured within the first couple of minutes. Um, kind of a like a nasty blow uh, to the shoulder. Hopefully, he'll be fine for the game against uh, Real Madrid. And and that's the thing, though, too. I mean, like, you know, going from... Um, the Celtic uh, Rangers game, which is you know a big game, massive game, fun to watch. Um, but the level of football between that and then playing Real Madrid, we'll see in terms of Celtics and, and Rangers chances. Uh, uh, I favor Celtic more in terms of their chances, but um, I'd like to see them get out of the group stage. But I'm not uh, optimistic there. And Rangers are too inconsistent. Um, it's just you never know which one's going to turn up and they can be good such as in the, the Europa League, but then uh, they can also be pretty poor, um, as we've seen. What about uh, Sunderland with the situation there, uh, Kartik? Yeah, first off, I have to say, Alex Neal going to Stoke wasn't that much of a shock to me. Fo- Spo- Stoke uh, has been in this position where they have consistently poached managers uh, since they've gone down, right? They've consistently poached managers that have been, they thought, uh, the ne- the next big thing that can get them to 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 back to the Premier League. Uh, they, they did it with Nathan uh, Jones, uh, who has been very good, except when he was at Stoke. Michael O'Neill, now Alex Neal. Now, uh, unfortunately, though, this is reflecting more on Sunderland, right? And I think um, you have a situ- uh, situation where uh, Sunderland is not. Uh, a, uh, a a stable enough situation. And Neil, they went unbeaten, right, from February onward last year in League One to get out of the league. Um, but you have a uh, you have a situation where I think uh, the consensus is that this is a lateral move for Neil. So why would he make it? Well, um, they are clear. The, the the reasons are pretty clear, in my opinion. I think. Uh, they are in a situation where you're looking at Sunderland potentially having maybe uh, another um, – they're not as chaotic a club as, as they were when, for example, the Netflix documentary happened. But I think there is a certain lack of stability in that club, and there is a an inability for the club to go out and get the kind of players that uh, that he wanted, in addition to the fact that he was on a rolling contract, right, which is, which is the point uh, – uh, the point you make, right, uh, uh, Ryan? The, the rolling contract was bizarre, and the rolling contract to me indicates there's still some backroom uh, dysfunction at Sunderland. And um, the terms of his contract apparently had been improved uh, since uh, over the summer after they were promoted, but um, it was then not until Stoke. And some other clubs, I should mention, from what I'm told, were sniffing around Alex Neal, that uh, Sunderland's board came back to Neal and offered uh, a more concrete contract proposal. Now, if it takes um, other clubs sniffing around to poach your manager for that to happen, maybe you really are at the wrong club. And Alex Neal is a is a wanted guy. He got Sunderland out of League One. He got Norwich out of uh, the championship, remember, and, and, and played some nice football in the pro- uh, process. He's a pretty good manager uh, and, and still a young manager that's improving in, in each job. Um, if I'm him, I walk. And that's what he did. 
All right, listeners, if you want to uh, share any feedback that you have about anything we've discussed on the show, uh, if you have any questions in regards to what we've talked about or uh, questions about streaming or uh, television or Ray Hudson, whatever it may be, um, definitely share them with us. We'd love to read those out on air. You can reach us uh, via email, uh, which is web at worldsoccertalk.com. And then we've got uh, facebook.com slash worldsoccertalk. You can leave us a message there, as well as uh, Twitter, at worldsoccertalk. And let me think of uh, any other places. Of course, the, the website, worldsoccertalk.com. Uh, the podcast thread there, you can leave it uh, in the comments section. And then last but not least, um, we also have uh, audio voicemail. So you can leave an audio voicemail, which uh, the phone number to call to leave an audio voicemail is 561-247-4625. All right. Contact can be reached on Twitter at KKFLA737 uh, for you know, sometimes Twitter spaces, sometimes politics, sometimes Florida history, uh, and definitely a lot of soccer there. I can be reached um, at the gaffer. Uh, or on the the main the main Twitter uh, thread, which is at World Soccer Talk. So thank you for listening. Uh, we've got a great week of football coming up. And uh, Kartik, uh, what are you going to do? And what should the listeners do? Enjoy your football.